Our sermon text this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Hello again. It's, it's different doing the pastoral prayer going down. It's like I had enough time to drink some water, catch my breath, and then I'd be up here. It's good to see you all this morning. Happy New Year. You made it. You made it to 2022. 2021 was a doozy, but here we go. God is gracious and kind. He's already there in 2022, so let's dive in with him. You see, in the church, there exists a continual pursuit. It is the pursuit of peace with one another and the pursuit of corporate holiness. And this striving for shalom and sanctification among believers, it's been purchased once and for all by Christ on the cross, and yet... Due to our indwelling sin, it has not yet reached its total completion in each of us. In fact, it will not reach maturity in us until we resurrect on that day and we'll be reunited, reunited with our King at His throne in our glorified bodies. And the courage to embrace this challenge and not grow weary in this race is the major purpose behind the book of Hebrews and our text this morning. God's grace has been lavished upon you, church. And to neglect so great a salvation and the communion with the saints is to harden your hearts to the peace and holiness without which you cannot see God. So this morning, I want to focus primarily on the loving command that the Spirit gives to us in these verses with emphasis on verse 15, which says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And the approach I'm going to take is kind of like a Puritan. I'm just going to ring those words for all they're worth, okay? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And I hope that as we step into the new year, I pray that this sermon will serve as a helpful exhortation to you, my friends, and it will provide a helpful explanation as to why our church is called Grace Covenant Church. So in light of this short introduction, let me tell you the four main ideas that I want to take us through as we look at this text this morning. The first is the responsibility of grace. The second is the inclusion of grace. The third is the obstacles of grace. And fourth is the throne of grace. Responsibility, inclusion, obstacles, and throne. So if you want something to remember while you talk about it over lunch, it's riot. Hopefully my sermon isn't a riot, but that's the acrostic for you to hold on to, a riot. First, the responsibility of grace. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Those words, see to it, that's what we're focusing in on. This verb is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's in 1 Peter 5.2. Look at that verse with us. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, and then here it is, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And now the noun version of this word in Greek is episkopos, which is often translated bishop or guardian or overseer, and it's from that word group that, and, and others that we help to define what the office of elder is. And it's also from that word group that we get the word episcopal. And even though the fire went out a long time ago in the Episcopalian church here in America, we can still learn something from this word that the author uses here in Hebrews. According to the Greek lexicon, BDAG, the verb means to give attention to or to accept responsibility for the care of someone. And it's also a present active participle, which means that it has this ongoing flavor to it. So a good translation actually be watching continually, continuing to watch over. How many of you have been a manager or a supervisor of some group or a project um, at work or school? Or how about this? How many of you are just your parents? <laughs> All right. When you're in charge of overseeing people or a task to be accomplished, there's a weight of responsibility that you feel. There's this deliberate stewardship that is required by virtue of your role, and you must exercise that for the sake of your coworkers, employees, clients, company, and your children even. To shirk that duty in this situation, it can affect each of those relationships in a negative or even destructive way. And so what we see here is the call to every believer is to actually watch over one another to make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, pastors, of course, are certainly, they're called, and they have a special duty for communicating and ministering God's grace and, and watching and shepherding the, the flock. But ministering and caring for others is not a pastor-only affair. It's not for us alone. In Romans 15, 14, Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. The grace and peace we've been granted in Christ entrust each of us with the responsibility for one another in this called community known as the church. Now, ironically, when you look up the word responsibility in a thesaurus, the word grace shows up as an antonym. So some of you might have been like, the responsibility of grace. <laughs> For sure, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. There is nothing you can do to gain your salvation. You cannot claim any responsibility whatsoever in the purchase of your souls from death because you are incompetent and incapable of cleansing yourselves from sin. But imagine a scenario where you're given a Christmas present that your heart longs for, and yet you remain stoic and unmoved, unchanged, after you rip the paper away. You simply look at it. Your face is just blank. You toss it aside and move on to the next gift. There's no thank you offered to the giver, no excitement sharing it with others that you've received it. What folly this scene describes. It's impossible to picture because actually it playing out in real life doesn't happen. I know because 
I just watched my kids open a bunch of gifts that they wanted. It didn't happen. It's a laughable scenario. It's something you'd see on like SNL or Mad TV. Because <laughs> you see, there's a tremendous responsibility on the other side of being given a matchless gift. There's a response to this unmerited favor that you've been shown in Christ by the holy, righteous God of the universe. You cannot remain unchanged by God's grace, and you cannot keep it to yourself. And as Paul continues in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And according to our text, a good work prepared beforehand that we walk in is seeing to it that other church members reach that future grace of persevering to the end. A grace-filled Christian is not merely concerned about himself before God, but his neighbors as well, especially those in the church with him. We as new creations should also be a means of grace to one another. Regarding this passage, John Chrysostom, the 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople, who was known as the, the golden tongue preacher, you know, Charles Spurgeon is our assistant pastor, right? He, he jumped over me, I guess. And, like, and, he, and he was the prince of preachers. This guy, before Spurgeon, there was the gold-tongued preacher. He said of this passage, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, it's as if they were traveling together on some long journey in a large company, the author of Hebrews says, Take heed that no man be left behind. Do not seek this only that you should arrive yourselves, but also that you should diligently look after the others. You see, in the church, in this church, specifically Grace Covenant Church, we share an accountability to our fellow members with the aim that they remain faithful and continue to grow all the way up until death. We travel this journey together to God's throne as a people created by grace and held together by his covenant of grace. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Man, this is an admonition that just runs roughshod over any individualistic understanding of Christianity that is truly more American than it is biblical. Which brings us to the next truth we see in our text. The inclusion of grace. Now, people can get really anxious when you start talking about inclusion because it means that folks you don't like that annoy you or who you might disagree with might show up. And nowadays, the language of inclusivity is even taken further by our culture and it's used to lower the bar of expectations so low that A's are given out for C-quality work, and attempts are made to completely change the nature of things so that men are winning trophies in women's sports. To be clear, I am not speaking of this insane idea in our secular age. I am not talking about that with the inclusion of grace. Because to embrace that idea is to define God's grace by what the world says and not what his word says. And God's astounding grace will never contradict his holy character. But I am talking about an imperative that will still sound scandalous to the proud and self-righteous among us this morning. 
So our text this morning says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So let's focus on those words, no one. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, we are told how God created mankind on the sixth day. It says there, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his image and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Every person on this earth has been created in God's image. And therefore, every person is an eternal soul that possesses dignity, value, worth that cannot be ignored, that cannot be denied. All people, man, woman, young, old, educated, uneducated, poor, rich, American, un-American, vaccinated and unvaccinated, reflect the image of God. Every single one of them. How much more should God's special creation those redeemed members of the church bear and reflect his holy image. You see, there's no upfront ethnic or demographical discrimination of who will fall short of the grace of God within the body of Christ. In fact, we're reminded at the end of history that this is the case. It's not the case. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, John says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So as far as we're concerned, we don't know who will fail to strive to enter God's final rest. For we are finite and do not possess that supernatural knowledge regarding who's going to ultimately persevere to the end. So we don't make that judgment up front and make discrimination regarding who we're going to graciously warn and encourage in the faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 reminds us, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, I'm sure most of you in this room would agree. I saw your heads nodding, and I heard a couple of amens, I think, that God can redeem anyone. He is powerful and mighty enough to save and change whomever he pleases. I mean, we read letters by a guy named Paul who was a terrorist. They used to kill the church of God. He is God. Nothing is impossible for God. And yet, many of us fail to believe this truth by the way we live our lives, by the way we think, by the affections of our hearts. Your heart, my heart, regularly throw up excuses for specific people in our lives and in this church. Some of you have Christian fathers or mothers who were, or for the young people in this room, are really difficult to live with, and this is an objective truth. I'm not going to, like, reason with you. Like, it's, it's true. It, it's hard. So much so that the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, seems like a ridiculous idea to you. You would say, I don't think he's that honorable of a man. My mother frustrates me so much. And that may be true, but is your mom and dad excluded within the words, no one, in our text? 
There may be wives in this church who are married to believing husbands that continue to neglect their duty as spiritual leaders of the household and don't lead the way that you need them to lead. Should you reserve a place for them in these words, no one here in this passage? Parents, you might have a child that continues to neglect your loving discipline and instruction, and it drives you crazy that you keep having to tell this kid over and over and over to stop, to stop the mayhem that they keep wrecking in your house. Has this little one's behavior tempted you to believe that they are an exception to this no one? Others of you have classified certain members of our church as those who are never going to change. That's just who they are. And you have zero expectation that they're going to mature in a specific area like service, church attendance, gossiping, just general growth and godliness. And you've given up all hope that they ever will. There's little room for giving that person the benefit of the doubt. However, people should always give that to you, right? Because grace, the grace of God has transformed you, but that person seems impervious to divine change. Are these church members excluded from the words, no one? And the answer to each of these is absolutely not. We should desire everyone to persevere and obtain God's grace at the end, to the future grace of being at the throne of grace when he comes again. Even so, as I went through these questions, there might be certain rebuttals that still rise up within you. But you don't know my dad. He's different. But she keeps saying dumb and nonsensical things. And you know, I've, I've shown him plenty of grace, and I think it's just run out. And in view of these objections, let's just move on to our next point, which is number three, the obstacles of grace. Which some of you might hear this third point and say, hey, wait a second. The Bible teaches that God's grace is irresistible. You will not stop it. When the Lord wants to shower his unending grace upon a person, the rebellious sinner cannot fight off the effectual calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is absolutely true. And spoiler alert, we're reformed. We believe in irresistible grace. Okay? It is on our calling card. It's who we are. And yet, we have to grapple with the words of this text this morning. You see, in the book of Hebrews, the author is not seeking to make an argument like Paul does in so many of his letters regarding the justification by grace through faith, which excludes any of our works. He presupposes this amazing truth. He's talking to this church that should know these things. It's the foundation upon which he writes this letter the writer is speaking to the church community who has been taught God's grace, and yet, like Israel in the Old Testament, her members need the regular reminder to not walk away from Christ. Or as an apostate, people like to say these days, to not deconstruct their faith. And with this in mind, we look at verse 15 again. It says, 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The verb here behind fails to obtain conveys, conveys the notion of missing out on something through one's own fault. And this inspired word lends itself to the possibility of people who are present in the covenant community forgetting the grace of God through unbelief. It indirectly communicates that the reason for God's grace not being received by another is due in part to the disobedience of this command. So we have some questions before us. What might provoke someone to fall short of the grace of God? What could possibly hinder God's grace? It feels so weird even to ask that question. As Hebrews 12, 2 mentions, is there any weight or sin that must be removed to receive God's future grace? Well, let's look at the rest of our passage and see. Look at verse 15. It says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So the first potential obstacle we see here in verse 15 is this great menace of bitterness. And the author uses plant imagery here to communicate this idea. A root obviously is the underground part of a plant. It cannot be seen, right? It's kept underneath and within the ground. And so bitterness is the sin of harboring contempt toward a person or group in response to their sin, whether that sin is real or imaginary. Sometimes it's not even it's true, and, and the bitterness rises up, and you have contempt for this person, and you assume the worst out of them. As one pastor has said, bitterness is always your fault. It's always your fault. It isn't the other person's fault. You are the one responsible for drinking the toxic brew of bitterness. See, bitterness is an internal sin that will always bear external fruit if it's not eradicated. As Jim Wilson explains, although you may not see a tree's roots, there can be visible evidence of its presence. As when sidewalks are lifted up. You know, I live in Delhi. And a lot of you might be in the same situation I was in, but um, our, our um, trustees told us that we were going to have to replace all the sidewalk um, sections that were messed up and all of our skirts going into our driveway. Um, it was our responsibility, and it has to go on our taxes. It's annoying. But I noticed my neighbor across the street had a lot of panels, a lot of sections that needed to be replaced because there was a big trees between the road and his sidewalk, and it was pushing up and breaking the sidewalk. So he has a little bit more that he has to pay when tax time comes than I did. You see, roots eventually spring up and cause a lot of trouble. And what type of trouble does it cause? Well, it says here, by bitterness, many people become defiled. This means it calls the purity of something to be violated. It makes people filthy. When you allow bitterness to come out in your speech, it pollutes those around you. It dirties up and blemishes the lenses through which you see the world so that you do not see God. It throws up stumbling blocks in the, in the church's pursuit of peace and holiness. Because bitterness looks at God's free grace and sees an opportunity for the flesh. And the result is the opposite of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And instead, you bite and devour one another. But as Galatians 5 
reminds us, watch out because you can end up consuming one another. But if we dig a little deeper around this root, like go down and, and pick it and start to pull, we find out why it is just so bitter. It's because it's an allusion to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 19, we're given a little more insight into what is behind any bitterness. Look at those verses with me. It says, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So what this reveals to us here is that there is this connection between bitterness and idolatry. See, because bitter roots grow best in the soil of idolatry. Bitter roots grow best in the soil of idolatry. Even though God has graciously delivered Israel from Egypt, and he's brought them through the wilderness, and now they stood on the precipice of going into the promised land, and he's reestablishing this covenant with the kids of the parents that were taken out of Egypt. He warns them of the consequences for turning away from him and hardening their hearts through idolatry. So idolatry is worshiping something created rather than the creator. And when a person's bitterness grows up and bears its poisonous fruit, you can be sure that idolatry is nourishing its roots lodged in his heart. We see this in the world and we see it in ourselves at home and in the church. I mean, imagine your kids are throwing a football in your house, although you have told them, not to, several times before, and their errant Hail Mary pass breaks something super expensive, and you come in on the crime scene. What do you do? How do you respond? Do you lose it and let them have it? Reminding them of all the times you said, don't do this? Berating them? calling them stupid and all these silly, like saying they're silly and putting them down. Because what you do in that moment reveals what you're worshiping then. Because if you lash out, be sure that your idolatry has directed your heart to bitterness, which then leads to anger, and it's spewed out and has now defiled these kids. You might say, but they broke the priceless heirloom vase. That is very frustrating (laughs) and very sad. All of us in this room have had really priceless, nice things that have probably been dashed because of an accident. But do you think that that vase is more valuable than your children that are made in the image of God? Of course, I know my kids aren't more valuable than a vase. I don't worship vases. Right? 
But perhaps in that moment, it wasn't a material thing that you were worshiping. Maybe it was yourself. And maybe it was the control that you thought you had over that household that had now been disrupted. Or maybe you wanted it to be comfortable. You were watching football and you had to leave because there was a game going on in the other room. And the comfort that you were embracing on your lazy boy has now been jacked up. Thus we see in our hearts, in a moment like this, dueling calls to worship. Shall I worship things that aren't the creator, like this vase, or myself, my comfort, control? Or am I going to worship the creator God? whose very image is reflected in these children and the one who has also shown me grace that I do not deserve in the gospel. You might say, hold up. Now, it sounds like you're letting those kids off the hook. They're getting away with the sin of disobeying their parents. Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 2, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Yes, I agree, they shouldn't have been doing that. But Paul also says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The kids need to be disciplined, but not out of anger and bitterness, but out of love, and that type of discipline is grace to them. That is loving them. That's not letting grace abound. That's loving discipline and this is precisely where grace is misunderstood there have been so many instances in the churches i've been a part of where someone has been disciplined because they do not repent and we tell them we're we're putting you out with tears and with grief and they're like well if you understood the grace of god you wouldn't have done this to us and see that's the thing grace is unmerited favor not unmitigated license Grace does not deny God's righteous justice and character. It upholds it and reveals it to the world. Grace is holy love applied that bears the fruit of righteousness. It's important to see how this relates in context to our previous passage this morning. The section before this in Hebrews 12, it talks about the Lord lovingly disciplining us as our Father. Look at Hebrews 10. 12, 10 through 11. For they, these are earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God the Father, the, God, the uh, Father of spirits, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you see the difference in the fruit produced by godly, loving discipline versus bitter punishment. The harvest is holiness rather than defilement. Extending grace to someone is not giving them license to sin, but it is offering them the good news of love and forgiveness that they do not deserve through Christ alone. And it's heralding to them that there's a better way. There's a way of wisdom to walk into. It's narrow and difficult for sure, but it is where true joy is absolutely found. And this is the charge of the final two verses 
of our passage. It makes more sense as we look at them. Look at verses 16 through 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. See, the author of Hebrews here elaborates further on the type of trouble caused by this bitter root of idolatry through the example of Esau. Um, and, and he, so what we see is the second couple of obstacles are within the church that would keep us potentially from falling short of the grace of God. The final grace is sexual immorality and unholiness. Interestingly, there's been a lot of scholarly work on how paganism and sexual immorality have always been in tandem with one another. This is just something that is a reality. It's a fact. When you're worshiping other gods, when you're worshiping yourself, this thing kind of falls right behind it. Sexual sin is the ultimate example of idolatry being manifested and lived out. And why is that? 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And there's been studies done that sexual sin, viewing pornography, it rewires the brain. It affects you. It, 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 it does something to your body. It, it kind of takes you from being the creature that you are creating in God's image and, and pushes you to like beastly impulses. And yet, with this passage right here in 1 Corinthians 6, and Joshua would make sure that I am very clear about this if he was here, Paul is concerned not with the body singular, like our bodies individually, but with the body plural, the church. Sexual sin defiles the body of Christ. It reverberates and affects all of us. And to act like immorality is no big deal is not gracious, but harmful. In fact, it denies the gospel and cheapens Christ's atonement on the cross. Participating in, in sexual immorality and not repenting from it and seeking also to redefine what God says about sex, gender, and marriage they're examples of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. But grace wasn't cheap. Even though it was free, it wasn't cheap. It was costly. It required the perfect holy life of the Son of God being offered up as a propitiation for your sin, for my sin. So that's the next obstacle. But then there's this reference to Esau, which recalls Genesis 25. 29 through 34. And as you might remember, I'm not going to take you to that text. Um, Esau, the silly man, he, he hastily gave up his birthright out of exhaustion from a hard day's work for a single bowl of soup. A single bowl of soup. His God was his belly to the point that he sought personal gratification rather than hold onto the holy gift he was given in his birthright. And see, the word translated unholy here can actually be rendered as irreligious or even secular. So you've heard it said of people that, oh, they're so heavenly-minded that he, they're of no earthly good. The author of Hebrews holds out Esau as the prototype of all who are so earthly-minded that the holiness of heaven has, seems to be no good to them. 
And this hairy red man is shown to be the opposite of those listed in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, precisely because he is so secular. What does it mean to be secular? Where it's to act like there is nothing but yourself, the things on earth, in the present moment. It is to live as if there is no transcendent, eternal reality and authority that speaks into the physical, into here and now. All you have is a material within you and in front of you. That's what it means to be secular. So idolatry doesn't just produce bitterness and morality. It also breeds secularism, secular thoughts. When we are preoccupied with the desire for the world to like us, we're primed and ready to turn our backs on God, the God of grace, and move toward the idols of public affirmation. And you see, Israel was tempted by the same thing. They looked around at the other nations, and they're like, this ain't have a good thing going. They partied super hard on New Year's Eve. I'm going to join that. But I got to worship their gods? Well, can't be too bad. And the same temptation remains with the church today. But you see, the uniqueness of our time and situation is that when everything is secular, Every individual person wants to be God and wants to be king. So the temptation is to want to please as many people as possible and compromise with the culture at large around us. But guys, get this. People-pleasing is actually functional polytheism. People-pleasing is functional polytheism. I've been to the nation of India. I've walked down the streets of Delhi and seen these um, shrines and all of these little gods and you all have to like offer up your your incense and your sacrifices to them to appease them and there's not really anything in return but that's what they do that's what polytheism looks like and so when we look at the world around us and we say i have to please the world these individuals in this world it's saying like i i'm gonna i'm gonna worship all them and what they have to say rather than what God has to say. I want to please them rather than please God. But that's like having a birthright and saying, I want a bowl of soup instead. I want a bowl of soup, even though I have eternity put before us by the loving God of the universe who created everything. I'll go with the, the minestrone. And this is what the author of Hebrews is pleading with us today. Watch carefully after one another so that no one becomes like Esau, giving themselves over to idolatry, to immorality, to secularism, to bitterness. There is no grace or inheritance of blessing to be found in worshiping the created things over the creator. See, the true and living God cannot be seen when idols consume your heart and blind your eyes. Those who choose to continually reject God's grace will find that there is no blessing to be received later, as was the case with Esau. So this morning, are you grieved over your bitterness and feel powerless to even pull up the roots that cling tightly to your heart? Have you been struggling with sexual sin and are afraid to bring it to the light? Are you tempted to just go along with the culture to avoid temporary discomfort in this life like Esau? then let me remind you of our gracious God 
who sits on the throne of grace. Which is our last point, the throne of grace. Look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The only place to go in need, in the midst of temptation, in the struggle of bitterness, when you have been caught by sexual immorality, when you are wooed by the ways of the secular world, is the throne of grace. And as John Bunyan would say, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ, sitting on his throne of grace. Church, you have a king who has actually walked among his people. He doesn't just sit up there. He has walked with his people, a king who sympathizes with you and meets you in your weaknesses but never gave into those weaknesses and temptations. A king who's like a priest, like a priest like Melchizedek, who has no beginning or end, and who brings his rule of peace, he's the king of peace, to your restless hearts. He's the great high priest who's come from the eternal heavens to live perfectly so that he could then be the suffering servant king who was enthroned on the cross and wants and will be enthroned on your hearts. And then he paid for your sins with the sacrifice of his body and blood. He rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules and reigns over you, your heart, and this church and the world. The Prince of Peace who sits on his throne of grace, his name is Jesus Christ. All who are needy, you can boldly approach his throne today. You can do it every day in 2022 and beyond and find access to the Lord's unending storehouse of mercy and grace. As John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not, I will never cast out. Jesus Christ will never throw aside his saints will never throw aside his children because he is a good and gracious Savior. He does not lose any that the Father gives to him. He keeps them to the end. But as the King of grace, he delights in having his grace rule in your heart. His word and commandments are grace to you. They're not burdens. They're wisdom. They're life. They're goodness. They're kindness to walk in, to lovingly be subjected to his rule on his throne. All of us who believe in the gospel can say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. See, because as grace works in you and me, we want to point others to Jesus' throne. We want to point others to that grace. And we plead to him who sits on the throne to sanctify and preserve 
us preserve our wives, our husbands, our sons, our daughters, our brothers and sisters in this body. Not only that, we exhort them, we confront, we lovingly prod them towards the throne of grace, saying, put away your bitterness, put away your immorality. Don't give in to those silly secular thoughts that are just always in the air. Remove your idolatry and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. See, last week I visited a small church in my hometown, the the church that God saved me into back in high school. And I hadn't been there for 13 years. It was really quite nostalgic. Um, There are a lot of feelings going on inside. But I couldn't help but praise God for his grace in my life while listening to to my former pastor preach, even while I was struggling to load the King James Version on my Bible app and where there wasn't any service because it was one of those churches. But that youth pastor was one of those clouds of witnesses, one of those fellows that he saw to it that he would want to see me obtain the grace of God. He, He poured into me, and then there's been people in college that have done that, people in seminary and people here now in this room that are doing the same thing. And you know, in those days when I first believed, I spent a lot of time, probably an unhealthy amount of time, listening to contemporary Christian music, and that was like a major supplement to my faith. And sadly, I can think of several artists in that CCM music scene that they've fallen away and they now deny the faith. They've become like Esau and embrace the things of the world rather than love God, his word, and the church. But I was encouraged this past week as I was listening to one of uh, these Christian rock artists, it won't be everybody's cup of tea, um, who hasn't deconstructed, who hasn't gone the way of the world. Instead, he's remained steadfast and bold in proclaiming the gospel amidst a depraved culture. So in close, I want to share with you some lyrics written by a guy named John Cooper, who's the lead singer of a band called Skillet, which is a funny name. Um, Everybody likes food cooked in a skillet. But um, that encouraged me with all of my flaws, all of my failures, all the things that I struggle with and God has delivered and is delivering me from to come boldly once again to the throne of grace. It says, if you can hold the stars in place, You can hold my heart the same whenever I fall away, whenever I start to break. So here I am lifting up my heart. If you can calm the raging sea, you can calm the storm in me. You're never too far away. You're never show up too late. So here I am lifting up my heart to the one who holds the stars. So church, as we pursue peace and holiness together in 2022, maybe remember that the Prince of Peace who sits on the throne of grace, he is able to pull the bitter roots of idolatry in our hearts as well as all of your hearts, all of our brothers and sisters' hearts in this room, and he can hold you steady and keep you just like he holds every single star in the universe in place. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are astounded by the grace you've shown us in the gospel. Unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. 
The only thing that we bring to you in salvation is our sin. That's all we offer. Our depravity. We thank you, Father, for sending your son who looked at that depravity and take it and said, I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to pay for it perfectly. And not only that, I'm going to give you my perfection. We thank you for that grace. God, we pray that we would not look at it and yawn, but instead we would rejoice and worship you all the more that it would fuel us in devotion, not just personal, but corporate, in a way that we look out amongst all the people in this room and say, I love you, and I, I'm watching over you too. I see what God's doing in you, and I want to I see you reach future grace. I want to see you persevere to the end and be intentional with our actions visiting, calling, texting, eating meals, encouraging, praying. God, help us in 2022 to resolve to be more um, intentional with the fellowship that we have as a church. God, we know that you can give us the strength to do it even when we don't want to and we maybe are bitter. You can pull it out. God, we pray all this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.